passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Nice buns. Soft, fluffy, and ultra-low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious, ultra-low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from Hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O C-O. And hello, everybody. Welcome back. It is our UFC 292 review. I'm John Pollock and... Bright and early on a Sunday morning, Eric Marcotte, who is here with us, a man that, uh, like me, sat through, uh, w- w- what did we clock in at? I, I sat down at 7 p.m. and left here at around 1.30 in the morning, and I imagine uh, you were the exact same, Eric. This was this was a long card. This was a really long card, I think. It, it must have clocked in at, what, seven and a half hours, uh, starting at 6.30, ending around 1.30. That's... All right, long. Sorry, but I mean that's a long night uh, for anything really, and it's it's not uncommon. This is how it is almost every single weekend. Yeah, I I saw Oppenheimer this week, and <laughs> I felt like I watched Oppenheimer about four times on on Saturday night with this UFC card. And I'm not diminishing it was it, there was some really great stuff on this card, but it was often I compare when we have a, a super long wrestling show and I'll make the comparison that, you know, some of these UFC shows are just as long and yet I don't feel the same length attached to them. This one, I very much felt the, uh, the, the seven hour uh, proximity that, that we were hitting. Like this was when you sit down and it's bright outside and then it's the middle of the night when you're finally done. That's when it, it does hit you. These summer shows. I always feel the time on these, but when you get like a main card such as tonight and every single fight is going the distance, you can, it really adds up. Even when they're cutting time by not doing some of the fighter interviews and whatnot, it doesn't really matter at that point. You're, you're going to feel every single one of those excruciating minutes. So what is your plan for next Saturday when they go to Singapore? Uh, and this card, I believe the main card is at 8 a.m. Eastern time with the prelims at a, uh, brisk, 5 a.m. Eastern start time. Uh, will this will this be a live watch, Eric? What what are your hours like on a Saturday morning at 5 a.m.? So my typical schedule is I wake up around maybe 7 p.m. and I go to bed around 10 a.m. So th- this is actually kind of going to work out for me. It's a, a more typical fight night experience. So when I messaged you earlier this week and said, hey, do you want to do the, the post show at, at 10 a.m. Eastern time? And you responded, sure, sounds good. That Was that a begrudging? Sure, sounds good. Oh, no, 10, 10 is perfect because a lot of the time we're doing it afternoon. And like at that point, I'm completely messing up my sleep schedule. This is just staying up a bit later. I'm cool with that. 
You, you and I have, have very different lives that, that we lead, but we can our, our paths cross at, at 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning. So thank you to everyone that is joining us. We're going to jump into Saturday's card at the TD Garden in Boston, Massachusetts, where uh, they announced the attendance at 18,293 and a gate of 7.25 million, which Dana White, not shy to point out that they outdrew Bruce Springsteen this week. Uh, good on them, I guess. Uh, congratulations, Dana. The UFC has finally made it. We've got John Anik, Daniel Cormier, and Joe Rogan on the call. And we're going to start off with the night's main event of Aljamain Sterling and Sean O'Malley. This was a very uh, hyped up fight and sort of a put up or shut up for Sean O'Malley, uh, who came off the Dana White Contender Series in the very first season of it in 2017. And I mean, there has been a lot attached to Sean O'Malley. Like this is a very talented fighter, but also someone that has been pegged with the label as a promotional favorite. And this was, you know, taking on a, an extremely um, credentialed bantamweight in Aljamain Sterling. But heading into this fight, like, did you see Sean O'Malley? He was, you know, he was a decent sized underdog going into this fight. But did you see, um, did you see this as an insurmountable fight for Sean O'Malley? Uh, quite the opposite. I, I picked him to win the fight. And if anyone doubts me, uh, go check uh, postwrestling.com, uh, the Discord, because uh, there is the evidence that will back that statement up. I, styles make fights. And Sean O'Malley, even though I thought Piotr Jan won their fight last year, Sean O'Malley proved to me that he is a top-level bantamweight. And just, I was thinking about this fight stylistically. Aljamain Sterling has improved a lot as a striker over the years. But the ways in which he closes the distance could be a bit concerning at times. And I've never seen anything from Sean O'Malley that made me think he had suspect takedown defense. So I just thought this was a good fight for O'Malley coming into it. And it kind of played out like that. Yeah, Sterling had won nine in a row coming into this and had defended the bantamweight title three times. And this has been a much maligned championship reign for Aljamain Sterling, where I feel there's been a number of situations that have been out of outside of his control from um, the first Peter Yawn win by disqualification, but then following that up with, like, I thought his best performance, uh, in, in the rematch with, with Peter Yawn. Then you had the TJ Dillashaw fight where Dillashaw came in and as close to a fighter coming in with an arm just hanging by a thread and didn't really get credit for that win. And then he's coming off the Henry Cejudo win that if you, want to look at all the inactivity for Henry Cejudo over the last two years. It just seemed like for every fight, there was something that got thrown at Sterling. And it was like, these are the fights and situations that are thrown at him. And he's passing all of these. So um, I think I was much higher on this title reign than, than most for Aljamain Sterling, but he was the clear villain to this crowd in Boston. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, Aljamain Sterling's been getting pretty negative reactions everywhere he's fought since that first fight with Piotr Jan, and it, it didn't surprise me that the Boston crowd did not take a liking to him here. And O'Malley, on the other hand, felt like an absolute superstar to this crowd. Yeah, he he came out, and this is our first time that we have seen Sean O'Malley since that split decision win against Jan last October, and. The whole crowd starts chanting, fuck you, Aljo, uh, throughout his entrance. And then as the fight begins, and Joe Rogan was aghast at this. Oh, my. What's going on here? <laughs> I was like, um, so Cormier and Rogan were just stunned by this. And it's throughout the first round, it's a lot of feeling each other out. There wasn't a whole lot, but I did feel this was like a, I won't say definitive round, but I saw Sterling winning this round just based on the inside leg kicks and in the final seconds working in the clinch against O'Malley. But 
I, I wouldn't say like too much of a tell of what was to come in this fight. The first round seemed to be much more of just a feeling out process. Neither fighter did very much in the first round. I gave it to Sterling as well because mostly based on that last minute where he did press forward, he trapped O'Malley against the cage and he landed some good. I think they were right hands. So it was the one definitive moment in which a fighter was clearly winning. And in a round like that, that's probably going to tip the scales. Well, the second round, it did not require much time before we got an ending to this fight as O'Malley is defending the takedown and Sterling starts using his jab and then Sterling throws with a left hand that misses and O'Malley just sidesteps and counters with the right hand of death and drops Sterling. This is as flush a shot as you're going to see. And he got on top. He's landing hammer fists and Mark Goddard, uh, Goddard dives in to stop the fight. And there was, a, uh, of course, Joe Rogan. Getting out the Zapruder film. Look, let's see that replay again. Let's look at that. And there was a lot of analysis of the stoppage here. Uh, before we talk about O'Malley's uh, ending here, what did you think about the the stoppage? Uh, I didn't even question it watching it live. I thought it was a, a fine stoppage. He got dropped hard and took like 20 shots on the ground. Uh, he, he was still moving, if that's your criteria for stopping. <laughs> he was alive. He had like, a pulse. See? He was alive and he was trying to do something. He, he just wasn't successful. So maybe I can understand uh, criticism, but I personally disagree with that. I thought it was a fine stoppage. Yeah, I, I, I didn't have like a, a strong leaning uh, either way here. And it's, it's sort of one of those cases where if Sterling complained about this, he's going to catch flack for it. And the fact was he did the opposite. And then the argument is, well, if he's not complaining about it, then it has to be a justified stoppage. There's no winning in, uh, in, in arguing or accepting if, if you are on the receiving end of that. But, um, this shot that landed by O'Malley, uh, was beautiful. And this place came unglued. And in a very rare instance, the UFC has actually uploaded this entire round onto their YouTube channel. So you can see the entire promotional push behind Sean O'Malley. They clearly see this being one of their potential breakout stars um, that I think they're going to look at this event as this being his his breakthrough moment. And so if you if you spent seventy five dollars on this pay-per-view, um, you can get the most uh, newsworthy round of the entire show for free on the UFC's YouTube channel. This is a tactic that I can't ever recall. Them I, I was going to ask you, do you, you ever know? remember them doing this? Um, uh, I mean, perhaps when Conor McGregor knocked out Jose Aldo is like a 13 second fight. So it wouldn't have shocked me if they put that up. But I, I can't recall them doing this before. It's clear that the promotion is 100% behind Sean O'Malley. I would say he was already a star coming into this fight. Maybe the biggest star in the bantamweight division. Just gauging off of internet discussion and popularity but after this it really feels like this is someone that they're going to uh put the full promotional vehicle behind going forward for his big fights and rogan uh, shared the information that o'malley's team had revealed that uh, o'malley had injured his ribs five weeks ago so he did no wrestling and they considered this his worst camp to date and they interviewed o'malley he said he had never felt more nervous for a fight and thinks that Aljamain Sterling is the best bantamweight of all time. And Sterling, who, again, he was just rained upon by this crowd. He was so classy in this speech and just didn't complain about the the ending, uh, put over O'Malley, and was openly second-guessing the move up the featherweight in the moment, stating, if that's what uh, I was put down by against O'Malley, how would I fare against Alexander Volkanovsky? And this comes from the comment he made on the MMA Hour this week, that he was 99% sure this would be his last fight at bantamweight. And if he is staying at bantamweight, it does create an interesting situation because this was thought to be the succession plan for 
his teammate, Marab Dwalishvili, to succeed him as the head of the bantamweight in that, in that camp. So a, a lot of decisions for Sterling to make. Um, but he is openly campaigning for an instant rematch. I do not see that being the immediate direction that they take Sean O'Malley. No, I don't think there's a fraction of a chance that the UFC is going to go that way. Instead, it seems like there is a obvious direction that they were trying to set up on the broadcast, especially Sean O'Malley, who shockingly did not call out Rob uh, after the fight. That, that wasn't the fight he wanted. That's the fight I want. That's what I want. A great story with Marab getting the rematch, but it looks like Marlon Vera seems to be the one. Like they do have the backstory with the with the previous fight with O'Malley and Vera. Um, but I don't know. Watching on this, like uh, we'll we'll get to it later. I don't even think Marlon Vera won this fight earlier uh, th- this evening, but he very well could be the front runner. And Sean O'Malley has openly talked about he wants to fight in December. Which again, that is music to the UFC's ears that we have a champion that is willing to fight and do quick turnarounds and December. It needs a main event. It can allow them to do whatever they need to with Conor McGregor and Michael Chandler. They can fight in December of 2030 and you can go with this bantamweight fight potentially. It's not as though Vera took much damage in his fight this night either, so it, it wouldn't shock me if that is what, where we end up going. Uh, the, you already have the built-in story of Vera beating O'Malley in pretty quick fashion the first time they met, but oh, O'Malley's leg, there was an injury, it's so controversial, so I'm sure they'll play it all up and get fans excited. Chino Vera has a following of his own, he's one of the more popular bandwits, but it's that he's definitely jumping the line over a couple of people here, including Corey Sanhagen, who is injured right now, but he just beat Marlon Vera pretty decisively. So, yeah, that's that's another aspect to the whole thing. How about for Aljamain Sterling? Do you ultimately see him staying at, at bantamweight, even with the weight cut? And do you just see him being thrown against, you know, one of the top five bantamweights? Yeah, maybe he's the one who ends up fighting Corey Sanhagen. They um they fought a few years ago, and Sterling won in pretty quick fashion. Uh, I do think people would like to see a longer version of that fight. I, I can't see Sterling winning by rear naked choke in like 40 seconds, ha- happening twice against Sanhagen, who's a very talented fighter in his own right. So uh, I wouldn't be I wouldn't mind if they revisited that one. Yeah, I mean, I'm just looking at the like he, the thing is like Aljamain Sterling has fought like. All of these guys, you're probably looking at a rematch if you're like you're you're getting really down here once you get to the uh, the Rob Fonts and Song Yadongs or Dominic Cruz. Like that's the bottom end of your uh, top 10. But yeah, we will see. Um, Aljamain Sterling had a very quick turnaround for this fight. I do not see him fighting this year. So, I mean, you, you do have t- time on your hands. And Dewalish Vili, he's also injured, correct? I'm not sure what's up with Rob right now. I feel like I haven't heard anything about him since his last fight against Piotr Jan, really. Yeah, he was walking around Boston this week with uh, the Sean O'Malley jacket that he had made a purchase of. So <laughs> I he completely wasn't... forgot that happened. Uh, yeah. an, an amazing moment. <laughs> so there you have it. Sean O'Malley is your new UFC bantamweight champion. We will see who the next contender is. But yes, we will get to Marlon Barry later, who may be the front runner. Li Zhang defended the UFC strawweight championship against Amanda Lemos. And this was um, among the most one-sided title fights I can recall. Um, by the end of this fight, uh, let's, let's pull up the, uh, the, the stats here to, to put into context. Zhang Wei Li outstruck Lemos by a differential of 296 to 29. 29 strikes that Amanda Lemos, uh, connected with. She, 
Zhang Weili threw 358. Lamosh threw 68. Six of seven takedowns for Zhang Weili. I mean, this, this was utter destruction. And it was, to me, only a question of how large of a margin she was going to win this fight by. Uh, we, we started off and Zhang just catches Lamosh's kick and stacks her instantly. Lamosh was actually, maybe her most threatening was off her back trying for this ninja choke. And Zhang was able to near to the body and got out mounting her, flattening her. And it was a pretty decisive round for, for, for Zhang. Into the second, uh, Lemos does land with, with a right hand, but it's a takedown by, by Zhang, controls her from side control, going to half guard and dominates the, the grappling, uh, which was where the majority of the round took place. Into the third, we have the unofficial strikes that Anik is updating us with. And by round three, when it begins, it is 125 to four for, for Zhang. So some catching up to do, uh, is ahead of Lemos. Uh, Zhang goes to side control, takes the back, flattens her, and she's landing down strikes. And you're wondering if, th- if this could be it. But Lemos gets back to her feet, eats a big right hand, and she did manage to go from four strikes landed to nine by the end of the round. An absolutely remarkable comeback. Huge. Into the fourth round we go. Now, this was definitely the best round for, for Lemos, who did land a pair of right hands. One of them, uh, the first one that landed was when Zhang was going for a kick. So she was kind of off balance and caught the shot. And it did land and briefly put Zhang down. Although I felt this was more of closer to a slip than really a, a knockdown. She was right back up and gets a big takedown on Lemos. And Lemos tried again for a choke off her back. It had no impact as Zhang uh, escaped. And then there was a big head kick by Zhang at the end. This was the closest round. And one of the judges did give this round uh, to Lemos. I did not. Did you see an argument for, for Lemos to win this round? I see an argument. I it didn't go that way either. I gave the, the round to the round to Zhang Weili. Um, this was the only round in which I would say Zhang didn't do significant damage. In all of the other rounds, when she took the fight to the ground, she did a serious damage to her ground pound. Even when they were on the feet, she would land the better strikes more often or not, than not. This was yeah. She still had the edge in terms of output in round four. But this was a round in which Lemos was perhaps landing with more power. So I, I could see the argument, even though I personally don't see it that way. Yeah, I mean, this was uh, the one round that Lemos connected with double digits with uh, with 13. But still, I mean, more than doubled by by Zhang's output. So I, I, I didn't see this as a round for, for Lemos. It was definitely, <laughs> if, you, if you want to say like the closest, I mean, th- this would qualify. And then in the fifth, I mean, the gap was just astronomical here. <laughs> I thought this was a 10-8 round. Uh, among several in, in this round, in this fight that you could argue, she just, uh, crucifixes Lemos and continues with strikes. Kevin McDonald, the referee, is taking a very close look. Tons of shots coming in and then ends it in the final 20 seconds with a, a sidekick and just one way traffic throughout the last five minutes. And Zhang Wei Li retains the strawweight championship scores of 50 43. 50-44 and 49-45. Very rare that you get a 50-43. I thought totally justified because that was the score I had. I had two 10-8s in this one and uh, just utterly dominant performance by Zhang Weili. Um, 14 minutes and 52 seconds of ground control time in this fight for the champion. This was one of the most one-sided title fights in UFC history. Actually, we can remove the title fights from that. This is one of the most one-sided fights in UFC history. I scored the fight 50-44 to 44 for Zhang Weili, and 
It was a truly excellent performance. She was securing takedowns with ease, maintaining top position, and doing significant damage with her ground and pound. These weren't just pitter-pat or nothing ground pound shots. She was going for the kill in every single round. And yeah, the finish didn't come as close as she came in the fifth after that knockdown. But this was about as close to a perfect performance as you would see. And I kind of, I was racking my brain in terms of fights with such a wide strike disparity between the two fighters and i'm thinking that the only ones that could have been on this level were max holloway versus calvin cater yeah and stipe miocic versus mark hunt those are the only two fights where i saw just such one-way traffic for so long so joining fine company of those performances yeah and i mean to to, to the credit here I, like i didn't ever feel there was that moment where you're just saying like stop the fight. It it was just it was domination, uh, but it was it was just prolonged domination, and I never felt like Lamosh was just, just needed to be rescued by by the referee. So it, it's it's the reason you sometimes don't see these one sided scorecards is because there's a stoppage in there somewhere or that opening. I didn't necessarily see it in this one, but um, you know Zhang Wei Li continues to level up in each subsequent performance, and this this was like. The gods evening out the strawweight field after that uh, Asparza Rose Namajunas fight last year that um, I still have nightmares about. And this was uh, just totally, totally dominant. It's not going to be the fight that's remembered like Zhang Wei Li and Joanna Janjacek. But in terms of like a one sided performance, I mean, you could argue this was, this to me was definitely Zhang Wei Li's most dominant. Yeah, this is one of the best performances in the title fight I've seen. And uh, it's a trilogy of great performances now from Zhang Weili, who, I mean, she, in the rematch of Joanna Janjacek, she looked like a completely different fighter, showcasing her new wrestling ability before getting that huge spinning back to stoppage. Then she takes the title off of Carla Esparza with ease, submitting her with like a rear crucifix choke. And here we have her uh, greatest performance to date, just Five rounds of utter domination against a very dangerous fighter in Amanda Lemos. So uh, she's really improved as a fighter. She was always good. From the moment she made her UFC debut, you could tell she was good. But this addition to her wrestling game has made her so much more of a threat. And she's taken up her mantle as one of the greatest strawweights we've seen now. So with that that wrestling aspect to her game, a lot of people were throwing out Tatiana Suarez's name. And, you know, she has had, she has just been snake bit by so many issues, like from her health problems, injuries. Uh, she came back, she submitted Jessica Andrade in her return to strawweight. I figure let's not waste any more time. Let's just go to this fight at the moment. It's the fight I want to see at 115 pounds. It's definitely the fight to see. Uh, Tatiana Suarez has looked fantastic throughout her undefeated career. And yes, there's only been two fights for her in these last couple of years, but she looks like she hasn't lost a step. And she's the one fighter in the in the division you would assume would be able to outgrapple Zhang Weili, but there's no doubt that Zhang hits harder and is the better striker. So stylistically, a very interesting fight. I hope that's what they make next. Well, the the domination theme continued because Ian Machado Gary versus Neil Magny. Now, when I saw this, so first of all, Gary was supposed to fight Jeff Neal, which was a very tough fight. And then on a week's notice, Neil Magny steps in to replace Neil. And Neil Magny, like this is a quality fighter. This was his uh, 31st UFC fight. He's had over 20 wins in the UFC. Um He was a plus 370 underdog. And I'm looking at this and thinking, wow, I've. I would certainly see a lot of people uh, taking a flyer on Neil Magny. I would think about 
10 seconds into this fight, any of those ambitious gamblers were thinking, oh, my God, what was I thinking? This fight was as clear cut and over as in record time in in terms of the very first calf kick that was thrown by Ian Gary. Magny goes down the second kick. He goes down. I'm like, dude, he's can't continue. He miraculously lasted 15 minutes. But my God, was this man tortured for 15 minutes by Ian Machado Gary, who, I mean, just ate up this guy's leg. And like Neil Magny, he is a guy like they pointed out, like this is uh, not the most uh, uh, sizable legs that are these targets. And he was just destroyed with these kicks in total. Ian Gary landing uh, 43 leg kicks throughout this fight. And Magny is just like clinging on Um, first round. It's just domination from Gary as he senses the kill and continues with these calf kicks. And Magny very early on incorporating the butt scoot, which this Boston crowd was so happy uh, to see and let him know it. And then there's a front kick to the face that partially lands uh, for Gary. So not only has he been training uh, in Florida and with Adesanya, it looks like he's also been consulting with uh, Professor Steven Seagal. Sensei. <laughs> Sensei Seagal making his return to MMA at the most unexpected time. The second round, uh, dude, Magni is like wincing as he takes more of these calf kicks. And you're just wondering, like, how is this guy even going to let? He's hopping on one leg. And Gary senses the end. He ramps up the attack, flying knee to the body. Magni can't put a weight on his leg. Uh, I I went 10-8 in the second. And then in between rounds, like, this is where you can certainly argue, like, with the pay structure as it is, the corner is so not incentivized to stop a fight when – you're potentially taking, you know, half the guy's pay away from him by not allowing him to continue. But there's the part of me that looks at this. What are you sending Neil Magny out for this third round? Certainly there is the financial aspect to it, but let's be honest. There, I don't want to say there was zero chance of him winning this fight. There was like 0.1% of a chance of this guy landing a Hail Mary. And to me, it was like this guy had no business continuing for this third round other than to just get, you know, credit as look how tough this guy is that he's going to make it to the end. But he, he was just out there as a, as target practice for, for Ian Gary. These last five minutes to me did not need to happen. And this was another 10, eight round for me. Uh, I agree completely. We were maybe 30 seconds into this fight when it became pretty clear as a spectator that, Oh, Ian Gary's going to win this Neil Magny. Uh, his legs done. He, he doesn't have anything left to offer. And for 15 minutes, we watched uh, Neil Magny generate no offense, just kind of shelling up and trying to limp around on his leg, taking a ton of damage from Ian Gary, of course, who naturally targeted the leg. If he targeted the leg more, he probably would have got a first round finish, but he was uh, often mixing up his attack to the body and head after he wanted to landing dis- those leg distribute the, the pain through, throughout the man. So he's, he's got multiple injuries. Uh, you know, he, <laughs> He, he could not, we'll talk about this later with, with Chris Weidman, but when it, when it came to the stance switch, I mean, th- this was not something that Magny was able to do very, very well. And so it was just his leg, just the lead legging chewed up throughout the whole fight. And he goes down again from a kick. There's a, there's a front kick to the face and they do make it to the judges and the decision is red and Gary wins by unanimous decision, 30-26, 30-26, and 30-24. Not a wild score at all if you wanted to give uh, 10-8s for all three rounds here. And Ian Machado Gary, um, humble in victory here, stating, I made Neil Magny look like he never fought in the octagon before. 
and he wants to prove he's the best striker, and therefore he has to beat the best striker in the division and challenges Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. And when asked about this potential fight, Dana White said, Stephen Thompson turned down the fight tonight. Yeah, Wonderboy is officially an enemy of the UFC after turning down an opponent who misses weight. Um, Whenever Dana White gives a line like that, I always want to hear context from the other side of like, did Dana just say, hey, you want to fight next weekend? Um, I don't know if I can get ready next weekend. Uh, That seems to be, I I would love to know Stephen Thompson's side of it. I assume what Dana White actually meant there was that he offered Stephen Thompson this fight on this card after Jeff. You know what? You're probably right. This was probably, (laughs) this would have been the fight that Stephen Thompson was offered. And you're right. That's completely out of context that if Ian Gary issued this challenge for later this year, um, you're right. This would have been the fight he was referring to that Stephen Thompson, after making weight, did not want to come back two weeks later uh, to make weight again. At the age of 40. Yeah, he's 40 years old. Keep that in mind. His days as a contender have passed. He's still a very talented striker, but we've seen him lose fights that he would not have been losing five years ago. And for him to uh, make weight, not even get paid, and then show up to fight again in a couple weeks' time, yeah, not not exactly fair to the man. So It, it is a fight I would love to see. And I would say, like, like Ian Gary, I, w- I was not, like, I- I've seen this guy. Like, he's had some defensive liabilities in the past. Certainly not in this fight. But, I mean, this is just... What a leaps and bounds um, jump up this guy has made and now is starting to become a real player. And boy, does he have the personality as well that is going to um, push him that much further in this welterweight division. He seems like somebody a large portion of the fan base is really gained behind and he's been able to secure a, a big knockout in his last win. Those highlights always add to it. And while he didn't get the finish here. He easily could have if he just kept attacking that leg a bit more. This was a legitimate win, despite the circumstances. Neil Magny is a a tough fighter. He's kind (laughs) of, I don't want to diminish him, but he's held the gate at welterweight for a long time. If you beat him, you're probably a top 10 fighter. And that's what Ian Gary's looking at now, top 10 fighters from here on out. Yeah, and a last-minute replacement that Ian Gary had to deal with as well here. Like, there's credit for Magny stepping in on short notice, but, like, Gary had to switch as well. So, very good win for uh, Ian Gary. Damon Blackshear versus Mario Batista. Now, Blackshear, you're probably thinking, wait a minute, didn't that guy just fight last weekend? What are the, what's going on here? And uh, yes, um, certainly making himself very popular in the UFC offices. Blackshear uh, raising his hand in the air when Cody Garbrandt fell out of this fight and stepped in on a week's notice uh, to make weight again. And dude, this is not a small bantamweight either. This guy must have killed himself uh, to make bantamweight twice in a week. And Winning last week against Jose Johnson with a twister. Uh, the third time in UFC history, as we were reminded many times on this night. Yes, they were not uh, going to be shy about uh, g- giving you that that factoid. Uh, Blackshear came out and he was looking great here. He uh, he spun and was just showcasing great takedown defense. And Blackshear is landing his own takedowns. Uh, Batista got a better position, but then there's a guillotine attempt by Batista and Blackshear popped out of it. In the first, in the second round, uh, Blackshear is defending more takedowns and landing with kicks. Batista swung, missed, and was taken down. And Batista gets up quickly. Blackshear's landing with elbows. And then Batista comes on in the final minute of the second round. Now, after two rounds, how did you have the score, Eric? I had it even up at uh, 19-19 and into the third round, giving Blackshear the, the first round and Batista the second. 
The third round, we have uh, Batista tied up against the cage. He's sneaking in elbows and finally gets a, a takedown of his own. And this was definitely, I thought, Batista's best round. Uh, they get back up with about 40 seconds left. Blackshear's landing, and then Batista scrambles and lands on top in the final second, uh, landing with elbows. So we go to the judges' scorecards, and Mario Batista gets the unanimous decision victory on scores of 30-27, 29-28, and 29-28. I scored the fight 29-28 uh, for Blackshear. You had it for Batista, I assume. Yeah, I scored the fight 29-28 for Batista. So he gets the victory here, and Batista is now 7-2 and two in the UFC, and he's won five in a row. Um, so this is uh, this follows his submission win against Guido Canetti in March. So we will see what's next for uh, B- Batista here. But uh, Damon Blackshear, I was very impressed with him, given the circumstances of this fight, and I think you could argue um th- this fight it was certainly a very competitive one and likely comes down to you know one round and which way you went i thought this was a really impressive performance from him despite the circumstances he did uh win the first round i thought uh fair enough but as the fight wore on i thought perhaps his cardio failed him a bit and that's when i started to think that batista pulled ahead but either way really impressive performance given the fact that batista is a very uh high level fighter it wouldn't shock me if he's in the bantamweight rankings soon there is a reason people don't fight every single week, but when you're trying to establish yourself, this does get you a lot of points in the USC for stepping up and, and doing this kind of thing. Don't be like Steven Thompson, guys. <laughs> he turned down this fight tonight. This post-wrestling podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Financial literacy can be daunting, but it's one of the most valuable things you can equip yourself with. On NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast... Their trusted financial journalists offer easily digestible conversational discussions on topics like balancing your portfolio. If you think an ETF is one of Cena's five moves of doom, this show might be for you. Planning for your tax bills this April so you don't have to worry about a visit from Erwin R. Scheister and putting away more money for retirement. Because unlike most wrestlers at the end of their careers, most of us should only plan on retiring once. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Okay, in bantamweight action, opening up the pay-per-view, Marlon Vera defeating uh, Pedro Munoz. And we will uh, we will discuss how our scorecards went. But uh, Munoz looking very good early on, attacking with leg kicks, a great pace. And uh, Marlon Vera, I think it was Aaron Bronstetter at TSN who pointed this out, that if Vera was won the first round, it would have been the first time he's won a first round <laughs> since October of 2019 against Andre Yule. So, I mean, Vera is a notorious slow starter, and uh, two of the judges did give him the first round. I did not. How did you have the first round going? Was this a, Did Vera break the streak on your scorecard? Uh, I gave the first round to Pedro Munoz, so he yeah. didn't break the streak for me. Okay, then that's all that matters. Sidebar here, we have we have like 5,000 sponsors that John Anik has to shout out, and one of them is Logan Paul's Prime Energy Drink, and the tagline is, the fastest growing beverage in history. Wow, in the history. The fastest growing beverage in history. Not energy drink, not any qualifiers. I imagine you can just come up with any tagline and it doesn't have to be fact-checked at all. I would love to know how like milk got off to a start. I would imagine that was pretty popular once. You know what? I could milk. I could see milk being a bit of a slow start. Like you're doing what with those cows? I, I it comes see from where? Being a bit it's not slow even pasteurized. Now, what about what about when they discovered water? Would that not be considered like a creation? Like that was just, it was here from the get go. Yeah, it's not fastest growing. It was immediate. You know, we we immediately needed it to survive. So I I think John Anik's statement clearly holds up and Prime must be the fastest growing drink to ever exist. Yeah. So, so in history, we've got, we've got milk, water, Prime. 
Uh, that's right. Okay. Have you tried Prime? I have tried Prime. I haven't tried the Prime Energy, but I've tried the normal Prime. They, they say there's like barely any sugar in it, but when you drink it, you'll feel like you Health, Health Canada, I think, says the opposite. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna feel like you just ate like four tablespoons of sugar. Yeah, I, th- I think the line they used on this was like, "There's no sh- no added sugar." Like, what what does that mean? Does that mean like we're just going by our standard amount and we don't add anything above and beyond that? Hey, don't worry about it, guys. Don't don't, don't worry. Don't worry. It's fine. So Vera gets his jab connecting in the in the second, and Munoz is landing with his right hand, continuing with the low kicks. Um, each is uh, establishing their jab here. I gave the edge here to to Munoz, who got several key shots in the final minute, and uh, there was a counter by Vera. But th- this was a, a close round. I think you could go either way. Uh, the third round, definitely a Marlon Vera round. He is just nailing him with these jabs. And, you know, for five rounds, this guy's great. Three rounds, it, it's going to be a nail-biter for Marlon Vera. And he hits uh, shots to the body. He's starting to land with his left hand and escalating the pace with his strikes. So I had it 29-28 for Munoz after three rounds. And I think this one came down to the second round. Did you concur? I agree with you. Uh, I had the fight 29-28 for Vera. I, I did give him the second round. I thought he landed his strikes with a bit more power, but uh, this was the most predictable fight in UFC history. You have Pedro Munoz, this guy who is literally all output. He start, he wins almost every first round he has and begins to fade as the fight goes on. And on the other hand, you have Marlon Vera. This guy is the worst first-round fighter in the history of mixed martial arts. He doesn't do anything. He just stands there. And as the fight goes on, he starts to take over. And I thought that kind of played itself out here. So what we're learning is that Marlon Vera, he should only be in championship fights or fight night main events. That's it. It would benefit him immensely, yes. Yeah, the wheels might come off, uh, but but at some point, uh, maybe maybe that is the, the path for him. But he got the win here, uh, 30-27 twice, 29-28. And this was interesting because I'm watching this, and I've scored it for Munoz. But as they're reading the scorecards, Munoz is just clapping and deferring to Vera. So it's like, I, and if you look at, like, a lot of people scored this for, for, for Munoz as well. But Munoz seemed to be, he was reserved to the fact he did not win this fight. So he was, yeah. uh, he was on, uh, your team, Eric. He, he had a 2-1 probably for Vera as well. I suppose when he did, when he heard the 30-27, he, he did the quick math. He knew he didn't win that last round. He figured it out. But we had, we had the same thing going on last weekend's fight night event where, uh, Cub Swanson fought Hakeem Dawadu and Cub Swanson, all, all grace and defeat. Clap. No, he did a great job. Get your arm. Cub Swanson wins the decision instead. And immediately he's asked, Hey, Cub, do you think you won that fight? And Cub was straight up. He's like, No, I didn't, but you know, I'll take it. The anti Patty Pimlin. <laughs> let's uh let's go to the uh prelims and uh man this was a this was a rough one for for chris weidman fans it was uh weidman's return after more than two years and shattering his leg in devastating fashion against uriah hall and coming back to fight brad tavares what did you think about the opponent that they had lined up with uh brad tavares for weidman's return I think Brad Tavares was probably the right level of opponent to choose. He's, he's a guy who's been around in the company just as long as Weidman and has kind of sat around that 15th ranked spot for the entirety of his existence in the promotion. He's of a similar age. He has a lot of miles on him, but he's not a complete pushover either. So uh, a, a good matchmaking, in my opinion. I thought the exact same thing, that there's a lot of times that we see these aging veterans and they're just thrown to the wolves. I thought this was like an honest chance for Weidman to come back against 
an opponent that we would clearly see. Like if if you cannot beat a Brad Tavares, then that really is sort of a litmus test on where Chris Weidman is. It's not like they just threw him against like the rising star of the middleweight division for Weidman to just be sacrificed to. Unlike uh, Daniel Cormier on commentary, who as as Chris Weidman walked to the octagon, Cormier was out here saying, man, if Weidman were to win this, Israel Adesanya versus Chris Weidman, wouldn't that be a fight? <laughs> Daniel Cormier just wants chaos and <laughs> sacrifice this, this poor guy. So Weidman comes out, and I mean, throughout the lead up to the fight, he had said, you know, I'm coming back and I'm throwing a leg kick right away. Well, Common sense prevailed. He did not throw a leg kick right away. Um, tons of chance for Weidman. I mean, he was one of the most popular guys on, on the card. Like, not quite Sean O'Malley level, but, I mean, he was very, very popular. And had been upset that he was on the prelims. But quite honestly, like, I I hope that did not take up too much real estate in his mind in the lead-up. Because it's, I mean, it is what it is. Like, I I don't, I don't, like, this was this was a big task for him, as this uh- fight would prove. On one hand, Weidman has lost six of his last eight fights. I don't know if that warrants a spot on the UFC main card. But even if we're taking this all into uh, thought, uh, the ESPN headlining position for a pay-per-view is the fight that's going to get the most viewers of anything on the entire card. So I don't actually think it's a bad spot to be in. That's In terms of eyes on your fight, that's going to get a lot more people watching than Sean O'Malley versus Aljamain Sterling, even. Yeah, it's... Weidman falls under that category of someone that I think when people think of Chris Weidman, they they instantly think to like 2011 till 2015, and they don't really put as much focus on like the leg injury was devastating, but it's not like this guy was on this upward trajectory no. when that leg injury happened. It has, you know, based on this fight, I think it only delayed what is, you know, um, an inevitable decline that seems to be continuing. So, Tavares uh, immediately finds success going after Chris Weidman's leg, and he's attacking the left lead leg. The right leg is the one that had got injured in in the Hall fight, so it's Tavares just unloading with, with leg kicks, and there's an uppercut at the end of the round, and just focus. There was the first of three low kicks in this fight, two by wide who who hit two it was two by Tavares one by Weidman that's right okay so th- there was plenty here and uh Keith Peterson I think he was sensing some nonsense uh but by, by the third uh low strike here into the second round Tavares continues with the leg kicks and Weidman's left leg is really hurt he's limping and he does switch stances and then he does start to have some success he lands with a combination and this is one of those fights where <laughs> He is the crowd favorite. So when he lands with anything, they explode like the Bruins have just scored a goal. And you sometimes overemphasize what's just occurred here. But, um, man, they wanted to see this guy win so badly. And not as badly, though, as Chris Weidman wanted a goddamn takedown. He was just would not give up on these takedowns. And, dude, Tavares just stuffed him at every chance. Um at Weidman at one point, like he's just holding on to him like a four-year-old tugging on their like their, their father's leg or something to try and take him down. And Tavares just would not concede ever. Um, Peterson stands them up at one point after another uh, low kick here. This was a uh, Weidman's one, and they they examine the footage and they rule that Weidman did kick him above the belt line, but they are restarted in the stand-up position. And again, Weidman is trying so hard for these takedowns. He's 0 for 5 by the end of this round. So 
Weidman definitely had his moments in this round. I didn't think it was enough to overcome the damage that was inflicted by uh, Brad Tavares. Uh, what did you think after two rounds so far of uh, Chris Weidman's performance? Um, as far as Weidman's performance, those leg kicks from Tavares were tearing him apart just as much as they were affecting Neil Magny. They were affecting Chris Weidman. The, in fact, there was a couple of times where I thought Weidman was just about to crumble and stop fighting because he was in so much pain. And it was later revealed that he like, he tore his ACL or his PCL or something like a very serious injury. But whenever it looked like he was about to crumble, he just started pressuring forward and actually mounting offense instead of going down. And whenever he did this, he was actually finding success. Whenever he pressured forward and started striking in combinations, he yeah. was winning this fight. The thing was, he started shooting for those takedowns, they'd get defended, they would reset, and his leg would get chewed up again. It was like watching the RDA versus Vicente Luque fight from, what was it, last week, where Dos Anjos was clearly the better striker and was winning every single exchange on the feet. And then he would shoot for takedowns and he would get beat over and over and over again. So uh, unfortunate bit of muscle memory, I assume, from Weidman here. So the third round, it's uh, Weidman throwing right hands. But again, he will not give up on these takedowns. And at this point, I'm just watching. It's like, dude, dude you need a finish. Like a takedown is not going to d- do you much good here to just try and get this round. Um, there's an overhand left by Weidman. And Tavares is just unrelenting here with these low kicks. Uh, by the end of the fight, Tavares had... Uh, hit 41 leg kicks to Weidman's two. And on just to emphasize the, uh, the, the wrestling in all of this, um, where, where is the takedowns? Weidman was 0 for 8 after three rounds on takedowns. So I had, uh, Tavares winning this, uh, comfortably. Um, he gets the scorecards 30 27 all same scorecard I had. Um, how did you score this one? I had the exact same scorecard, 30 to 27 for Brad Tavares, a, a very dominant victory. The leg kicks were just far too much for Wadman to overcome. And uh, unfortunately, it looks like he may be out for another year after this one if he does choose to return to the sport. Yeah, this was a real rough one to watch if you're a Chris Weidman fan. First of all, like I, I think it's it's an, it's remarkable that he came back after that just the leg that shattered. Like there is there is a victory just in and of itself that he made it himself like able to come back and he had tons of complications after that that leg break and had to have several surgeries on it um but you're just watching this and like to me they gave him an honest chance to see where he is at brad tavares is a a very good fighter but again he's he's not even ranked and I just don't know what your next step is if you're a chris weidman he's 39 years old he suffered a knee injury Dana White was saying it was one of the CLs. So whatever that is, he's got a, a a knee injury coming out of this whole thing. You're looking at a prolonged period to come back from that. And honestly, what are you coming back to? Because like, honestly, if you're the UFC, like what is your strategy with a Chris Weidman? Like to me, it's this was your fight to give you a, a fair opponent to see what your skill sets at. And the next fight, like, what are you doing? Is it, do we just use Weidman to build somebody else up? And that's going to be a lot more of a, it's going to be more depressing than this. If you're a Chris Weidman fan, I, you know, Chris says he wants to continue fighting, but I just, I don't know what you're continuing to fight for. Like the, like the idea of a championship is just insane at this point. Yeah. I think most people would like Weidman to retire. If they're fans of Chris Weidman, if they're fans of his work, he was genuinely one of the best middleweights ever in the prime of his career. He was a very talented fighter, but um, 
this, this these last few years have unfortunately been a Johnny Hendricks Henan Barrow like stretch for him, where he went from being the champion to losing in brutal fashion over and over and over and over again. And there have been a couple moments of hope, like when, when he beat Kelvin Gastelum, but that was a very rare that was five exception. years ago as well. Yeah. Six years very ago, rare exception to that. It might have been longer. If you, well, it feels so long ago now because that's so much has happened in the division. It's, <laughs> since Chris Wyman was champion, Luke Rockhold was champion, and Michael Bisting was champion, and George St. Pierre, and Robert Whitaker, and Israel Adesanya, and Alex Pierre, and Adesanya again. It's the division has moved far, far away from the state it was back then. All the contenders from that time are gone. And unfortunately, it seems as though the sport has finally passed them by. So if he comes back, it's like you said, what is there? Is he just going to get fed to somebody? Or is he going to fight somebody so low in the pecking order of the sport that it's what does that victory mean for a former champion? I, I don't know. If If he were to be cut by the UFC... Like, where do you see him going? Because I, I would, I do not see him like retiring if he was like cut. And I, I don't know if the UFC would necessarily cut him. I think they want a more graceful end yeah. for, for this guy's career. But I mean, then you're looking at your, your PFLs or your one championships or bare knuckle. Honestly, I think anyone would sign him. That's, that's the way the sport generally is. There's not too many fighters who are just viewed as so over the hill that Bellator. Or- the PFL or fucking Ryzen won't sign them. So I, I do think there's a future for Chris Wyman wherever he wants there to be a future. That's just when you have a name like Chris, like it, it's been years since he was a contender and he was the second most popular fighter on this entire car behind Sean O'Malley. He got a hero's reception. He's he's viewed as a legend of the sport now. He He has all the paths available to him that he may want to continue. I'm just personally hoping that he doesn't and he chooses to ride off into the sunset. We'll quickly go through the rest of the fights here. Robocop, Gregory Rodriguez, uh, knocked out Dennis Tolulin in a minute 43. Uh, Rodriguez shot for a single and got a body lock takedown, mounts the back, and he just drills him with these two big elbows. Um, they showed the replay. The first one, dangerously close to, to the back of the head, a little inconclusive, but it, it was damn close. The second one was very clean, uh, but he finishes him at a minute 43 of the first round. And he announced that Jesus put him here. They will never take me. They tried to kill me, but I am RoboCop. I never die, man. This was the greatest interview of the entire night. He was, he sounded crazy, but he was so he was Hanato Moicano level of post-fight <laughs> oh, interview. I don't know if he was quite Moicano level, but he came damn close. He was so confident in what he was saying. It, it was great stuff. He's always an entertaining fighter. Whenever you see him on the card, you know, oh, this will probably be fun. And yeah, he got the job done pretty quick here. That, yeah. that elbow was definitely illegal. It was so illegal, but that's a fake foul. It never gets called anyways. Yeah, for for everyone, it's it's the mohawk rule that like it, it's like that is imagine if you had a mohawk going around your head, like where the mohawk is situated. Like those are the that's the illegal area, and this was you know pretty much on the button there. But uh, Dennis Tolulin didn't know where he was after this to uh, to protest, and then we go into uh, a pair of a uh, tough finale uh, fights. How many episodes of Tough did you watch this season? Uh, yeah, all of them. I'm sure you did too, John. Give me your thoughts. Uh, break down each episode. You know what? I watched the first episode. I watched okay, the first you episode. Have me beat. You had me beat. And <laughs> I was just like, no, I don't have this in me at all. Dude, for, for all the talk, like this was a tough that it was not just ESPN plus. They got it on actual ESPN with Conor McGregor. And dude, the, the numbers for this 
series were exceptionally disappointing. I, I think this past week's final episode did something like 210,000 viewers. So think about that. That would be like, that's not even in the realm of like what Rampage is doing on Friday nights. It's wild. It's a show that is far outstayed its welcome. I, I stayed on for a long time, actually. I think I made it to like season 28, which I'm almost ashamed to say. But there, there came a moment once you finally give up, once you finally cut the ultimate fighter from your life, you will never go back. There is no inclination deep within me that ever wants to see five seconds of footage of the tough house again. I, I'm done. I'm out. And so are most people. Like, I swear to God, you could you could program and produce this show through AI. It is so cookie cutter every single season. So Kurt Hollibaugh and Austin Hubbard. So it, it, for, for 98% of you that didn't watch tough this season, the, the promotion was veterans versus rising stars. So Conor McGregor picked all of the rising stars that have never fought in the UFC. Chandler picked all the veterans that are, have UFC experience. So with the exception <laughs> of one fight, Chandler ran the table in this thing and it was, um, and then they had an ice bath challenge at the, at the end where they nearly killed themselves or risked hypothermia. There is no risk of the fight falling through. So why not have them do it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we have no <laughs> announcement of a, of a fight, though. Chandler is still optimistic about December. And I saw it. It's just like, I feel do, do so bad. Michael Chandler is not a young man. He has been fighting for a very long time and he is wasting months and months of his career holding out for this fight. That's never going to happen. So Kurt Holliba and uh, Austin Hubbard, this is for the lightweight contract. Uh, Hubbard got him down in the first round. He's trying for a guillotine against the cage. And then Holliba responds with strikes. In the second, it's Holliba landing with his right hand. He follows and uh, he gets him down. He's controlling the wrist. And then Holliba gives up on a choke, but manages to mount Hubbard and goes for uh, like a belly down arm bar. And as Hubbard fights it, Hollibud did this beautiful transition from the armbar to a triangle, and Hubbard is forced to tap at two minutes and 39 seconds of the second round. So Kurt Hollibud gets his first submission win since 2016. He had left the UFC in 2019 after three losses in a row, and he officially joined the UFC lightweight division because in his post-fight interview, he issued a challenge to Patty Pimblett, who now has about 15 fighters that are gunning for him. I I was about to say I couldn't believe it, but I can believe it because that's the expected result whenever an unranked fighter has the microphone at this point. They are about to call out Patty Pimblett, who is still injured, I think. So uh, if he wants, he can fight anybody in the world because I think every fighter in the lightweight division is looking at this man like, well, that's a that's a pretty big name that I can beat. And how many of them are right on the, on the second part of that assessment? I don't know. But he has become the new Conor McGregor in the sense that everybody thinks he is the money fight. And it's very tiring, but also kind of funny. Yeah, I think he is very much viewed as someone low risk, great reward. So, I mean, you're, you're always going to it's, um, you know, it's it's a great moniker to have where you are never going to be without um, fights. Um and, no, this you know. isn't Islam Makachev looking for a fight uh, two years ago. This is very much uh, everybody wants a piece of Patty Pimblett. Then we go to the big one. This is the bantamweight final between Brad Katona and Cody Gibson. Brad Katona trying to become, as he called it, the ultimate fighter as a two-time ultimate fighter winner. You like that that tagline? Yeah, the absolutely. Ultimate fighter. <laughs> absolutely dreadful. I don't think it's ever going to be repeated, but uh, bless him. 
That was as dreadful as this fight was great. Um, first round, the two are just tagging one another. Gibson landed this huge right hand. Katona's using inside leg kicks. And then Katona lands with several left hands. Tremendous pace throughout this uh, first round. Uh, most lean towards Gibson. I think I would too. But I thought this was a very close round. Oh, it was certainly very competitive. These guys were just throwing down at a ridiculous pace. I, I saw it for Gibson as well. I thought he was landing the better shots and he was pressuring forward, which is always a good look, but uh, we'll, we'll get into it. This was a wild fight. Yeah, there was, I mean, I don't know if I've ever quite seen this kind of swelling, but Brad Katona had this like white swelling over his eye. It looked it, like it just looked so bizarre. Like this, uh, it, it just looked like this long white stretch of like swelling over his eye from these strikes he took. The second round, um, this is where the eye is swelling and, uh, Katona is using jabs. There's a right hand that stuns Gibson. Katona goes to the clinch and he's landing and just rocks him with this elbow. And after two rounds, you're looking at this and this is just an unbelievable pace that these guys are not slowing down in any way. So I had it even going into the third round and, Brad Katona is complaining about his knee in between rounds. His corner told him, don't worry about your knee. And he did not uh, as he continued here. And he keeps up that pace. Huge right hands landing for Gibson. And then Katona drills him with this left hand. Gibson's eye is hurt and it is swelling. It must look terrible today. Katona just takes him apart and just goes after the eye, which continues to swell. An amazing, amazing fight. Uh, I had it 29-28 for Brad Katona, who got the unanimous decision. Uh, one judge had all three rounds with Katona, which I thought was a totally justifiable score, and then two 29-28. I thought this was a fight of the year contender. It got fight of the night. Uh, an amazing fight. And the only thing is that there's so many of these tough finales now that I don't know if this fight is necessarily going to get remembered. But they were comparing this to Griffin and Bonner. Listen, that's a legendary fight. It was a super important fight. This was a be- this was a much better fight than Griffin oh, and yeah. Bonner. It was a much much better fight in terms of like people remember that quality. fight, and they should. It's a very historically significant fight, but it is very sloppy, and it is like there are many fights that that are better than that one, and I would certainly include this one. Like this, this is just an excellent fight, and this this could this is certainly a fight of the year contender. Uh, the clear fight of the night, at the very least. Uh, really great stuff. Brad Katona becoming the second or first person to win the Ultimate Fighter twice. Uh, what a distinction. What a distinction. What an honor. <laughs> yeah. What does the I, loser I get? Know. A berth in the next uh, PFL season and the chance oh. to win a million dollars? Oh, yeah. What a what a horrible prize. I, how, I think they, how could they not ink up Cody Gibson here? Is he not among the 650 fighters that they could have under UFC? Like, this guy has to I be believe back. they said they are giving him a contract after this one. How could you not? This was such a great fight. Excellent. And Gibson definitely looks like a UFC-level fighter. So, ob- Brad Katona is obviously, obviously a UFC-level fighter. He was never not a UFC-level fighter. He got cut after, like, wit- uh, a pair of losses against Marab and, like, Hunter Azure. Like, these were really high-level guys that he lost to. And then, oh, there's the door, Brad. I'd get out of here. Well, he's won the Ultimate Fighter twice now, and I think he'll be around for a bit longer this time. Yeah, Michael Chandler was in the crowd uh, cheering on his his teammates. It was funny because Katona trains at SBG Ireland, but was not picked by Conor McGregor. So he was on Chandler's team on the show. So not including the tough exhibitions, Katona has now won five in a row, but this was the fight to definitely go seek out from the prelims. It was uh, excellent. And then the the early prelims, uh, I don't know if anything here uh, requires your immediate viewing. Uh, Andre Petrosky 
defeated Gerald Mearshart, who has now had 19 fights in the UFC. I feel Jared Mearshart, it feel, he feels like one of those guys that fights every three weeks. He definitely feels that way. You'll just be like tuning up a random Apex card and it'll be like the third preliminary fight. Oh, it's it's Gerald Mearshart. What do you Mearshart's know? He's fighting back. again. <laughs> yeah. I had uh, Petrovsky winning the uh, the first and second with Mearshart getting the, uh, the the third round when he he finally got his, his strikes going. Um, Petrovsky got the split decision win 29-28 twice and one scoring it for Mearshart. Petrovsky is now 5-0 and in the UFC and... Uh, the noteworthy part was this was at the end of the early prelims and they took too much time deliberating the scores uh, that they had to cut the interview with uh, Joe Rogan. There were so many interviews that got cut throughout this card. Like Chio Vera did not get an interview after winning his fight. Um, I, I forget what the second fight. Mario Batista did not get an interview. If if Ian Gary wasn't a project that they were getting behind, they wouldn't have given him an interview either. Uh, they were low on interviews tonight, which I'm okay with. Yeah, this was a long card, even without uh, several post-fight interviews. Andrea Lee and Natalia Silva, they went uh, three rounds here. And I had Silva winning the the first. I had her winning all three rounds here. Yes. Uh, Silva wobbled Lee early on in in the first round. In the second, we're, we're seeing more push kicks from Silva, keeping up a pretty strong pace. And then in the third, uh, the corner is encouraging Andrea Lee to take this to the ground. Uh, she did not heed that advice. There was no takedown attempts here. Uh, Silva was just way too fast. That was the biggest difference in this fight. And it was just remarkable to see the difference in speed. Um, lots of combinations here and a sidekick drops Lee momentarily. So I had a 30 27 for Natalia Silva. She has now won 10 straight. She has four and in the UFC and that is three straight losses for Andrea Lee. An impressive performance from Silva. Um, Lee's probably hit her ceiling in the promotion, to be honest. I, I don't know if she's quite at that UFC level, but uh, good stuff from Natalia Silva nonetheless. And the last fight to go over, Karini Silva submitted Marina Moroz. This was a rematch from 2014 when Moroz submitted her with an armbar. And uh, this time around, uh, it's Silva uh, shooting and completing the takedown. And she passes the guard and is working for a choke from her back and locks it in. And Moroz taps out with one second to go in the first round. It is Silva's ninth submission win. And she is 3-0 and in the UFC. All submission wins and uh, avenges this loss to Moroz that took place nine years ago that was my favorite bit of trivia in the entire card when uh, at the start of the action i think john anik just says and this is a rematch from 2014 what these fighters were fighting was this build as morose silva too <laughs> the fight fast prelims yeah um hey silva is an entertaining fighter uh, we'll have to see a bit more of her in the promotion before we can get really get a read on uh, her ceiling in the division but she's certainly entertaining so that's always a big plus all right. And that was UFC 292. What, what would you grade this card overall, Eric? Um, there was certainly some fights I was interested in and some good performances, but, uh, I'm, it was so long that this card was so fucking long. Um, I give it a five out of 10. It, it passes, I guess. This is a lengthy Okada <laughs> title defense that is not really all that inspiring until until the end. He has the great closing sequence. Uh, exactly. Yeah. It, it's like a Jay White versus Okada match where the first 30 minutes is just a lot of stalling. But those last five minutes, oh, man. <laughs> well, next weekend, um, again, for the bonuses, the, the fight of the night obviously went to uh, Brad Katona and Cody Gibson. And then the performance of the night bonuses went to Sean O'Malley and Zhang Wei Li. Um, Hopefully Ian Machado Gary got something for his performance because it was uh it was pretty dominant as well. 
Next weekend, they're in Singapore, thus the the early start time. So the main card will be at 8 a.m. Eastern on ESPN. I don't know what they will be up against on a Saturday morning at 8 a.m. Eastern time. But if you are up at that hour, you get Max Holloway against a Korean zombie, Chan Sung Jung, Anthony Smith against Ryan Spann, uh, Jiga Chikadze against Alex Caceres, and some of the other fights on here. We have uh, Talia Santos against Aaron Blanchfield. And opening things up, it's it's the Elite XC special. The heavyweights will open the main card with Junior Taffa mm. against Parker Porter. Oh, God. Yeah, that sounds dreadful. Uh, there, there's some notable names on that card at the very least. That main event has the potential to be really, really sad because the Korean Zombie's pretty shot by this point in his career. And even if he were to somehow pull it off and beat Max Holloway, that'd be kind of sad, too, because Max Holloway should not be losing to the 2023 version of the Korean Zombie. So, uh I think it might be a bit of a, a tough one for the hard course. Yeah, that's that's going to be a rough one, I think, for, for Jung. The following week, they're in Paris, France, with uh, Cyril Gon, who will look to come back from uh, an awful performance against John Jones, against Sergei Spivak. Um, maybe the most interesting fight, it's uh, Rose Nami Yunus uh, returning to take on Men and Furo at flyweight. And then after that, it's the next time we'll be back. UFC 293 in Sydney, Australia. So what what time? Is this starting at the normal... This is the normal time on a Saturday night, I believe, if it's Australia. I have no idea. I didn't look it up. When when I saw the fight card, I thought it was like an Apex fight night. And then I saw UFC 293 from, from Australia in an arena that seats like 20,000. I, I couldn't believe it because this card's horrible. Eric Marcotte, not, not going to be going to Sydney anytime soon. But if you are, you get to see Israel Adesanya against Sean Strickland, huh. Tai Tuivasa against Alexander Volkov, John McDessey against Jamie Mularkey. Sean McDessey, oh my God. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Justin Taffa against Austin oh, Lane. Oh, no. Yeah, this is a card that uh, oh, I don't no. know. I, I'm not as... Uh, Amped for this main event as uh, some others seem no, to be. No, that's 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 going to be a horrible main event. That I don't is see a this recipe being... for five rounds of nothing. It is. This is a hor. I think this might be the worst pay per view on paper I've ever seen, and that is a strong statement. I know because there have been some offerings over the years. This but... Singapore card looks better than this. Oh yeah, one hundred percent it does. This this UFC pay per view barely looks like an entertaining fight night. This is. Um, if it was not for the star power of Israel Adesanya and whatever following Sean Strickland has, I, I, I don't think you could legally charge money for this. As always, Brandon from New Jersey chimes in. You're under no obligation to answer this, uh, Eric. Is Boston the worst city in the world to make an Irish-American Irish superstar? That state brings out the worst in people. Stop calling out boxers. Uh, did somebody call out a boxer on this card? I, I don't recall that. I don't either. Uh, Brandon could be just totally making this up too so i, I don't Sorry, recall Brandon. boxer being called out but uh, apologies if if there was maybe maybe there was a call out for ksi uh, that we were not aware of are you looking forward to any of these uh upcoming boxing fights in october with logan paul against dylan dennis um oh my God. tyson fury against francis and in saudi uh, arabia no i can't say any ksi of these, and tommy sorry. fury Wow, I, I, I doubt even like two of those three fights will even happen. They just seem like things destined to fall apart. Um, I, I have no interest in any of this. Will you be watching the Prime Energy card? The fastest growing fight card ever. <laughs> not, not a fraction of a chance. 
Well, there you have it. That's the boxing report from Eric Marcotte uh, for, for all MMA fans to look forward to. And we want to thank all of you uh, for joining us here on Sunday morning. We hope you enjoyed this uh, this time slot. It, it works for us. So we hope it works for you as well. So uh, tentatively, we'll be back for UFC 93 unless I get just a panic message from Eric who says, listen, I, I just can't. I can't. And then I will understand. At so some that, point, the candle is going to burn out. We don't know when, but at some point. We need to preserve Eric, okay? He sits through some of these cards that, I mean, I'm, I'm just waiting for him to eventually just say enough is enough. Um, but hey, the PFL is wrapping up its season. That should be, um, I'm sure the, the finale card will be um, endless. Um, I haven't watched a single PFL card this year, and it's it's been beneficial to my mental health. You know what's been impossible to watch in Canada is Bellator now. Bellator, I know. And that's actually disappointing for me because last year I largely enjoyed watching Bellator. I thought their shows were uh, well-paced. They had some fun fights. I was I enjoyed watching Bellator more than I enjoyed watching the UFC last year. I know, big statement. All of a sudden, you can't even watch in Canada without uh, paying extravagant fees, which not happening. Yeah, we, we've gone from the extremes because they did not have a television deal here in Canada. So they would just put the cards up for free on YouTube. So it was super easy to watch them. And then they decided, you know what? You should have to pay for every Bellator card. These non-pay-per-view cards will make them pay-per-view in Canada. And I would love to know how many people in Canada are ordering these fights. I would imagine, seriously, it's under 100. Bellator has fallen so much in terms of uh, their peak of popularity. I don't see anybody talking about it. Even uh, media members of like who exclusively cover M- MMA, I-, I don't see as much of their attention on Bellator anymore as it was. A lot more eyes now on products like PFL or One Championship. So, and on top of that, we kind of all know that Bellator is likely in the process of being sold, perhaps to a competitor like the P- PFL. So. We may finally be reaching the end of Bellator. Yes. And they do have Bellator 300 coming up. I'm so excited. They made it to 300 before the UFC. So there you have it. A big card for them coming up. Four championship fights, which, I mean, uh, is Bellator not just stating, listen, we are we are going to get four decisions. Yeah, that's that's typically that how would be the most Bellator 300 card you could imagine. <laughs> well, the the most Bellator card would be you get a bunch of decisions and then the main event ends in an eye poke after 30 seconds. That would that's be true. peak Bellator. The eye poke slash low blow ending to a main event is definitely in the cards for Bellator 300. Uh, but in the cards for us is some sleep. So goodbye, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, we appreciate it as always. And this wraps up your UFC 292 review. <laughs>